The heart and soul of tonight's section of the Passion is found in a few remarkable verses. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his, on his left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The Brothers Karamazov is a novel written by Fyodor Dostoevsky, a Russian author, and maybe you were afflicted with it in high school or college, I don't know. It's considered one of the greatest. In any case, it's a story about a father and his sons as they struggled to be a family. And one of the characters in the book is a priest by the name of Father Zosima. On one occasion, a peasant woman comes to Father Zosima, greatly burdened, on her knees, bowed before the priest. She pours out her heart. I have sinned, Father, she says. I am afraid of my sin. Leaning close to the priest, she tells the rest of her story and the nature of her sin. She was now a widow for three years, and she'd been married to an older man who had been very cruel to her. And in her confession to Father Zosima, she laments, he lay ill. I thought looking at him, if he were to get well, if he were to get up again, what then? And then the thought came to me. At this point, she whispers her sin to Father Zosima, and the reader is left to conclude the exact nature of her sin. Yet the one thing that is for sure in the story is that she has sinned and that she is afraid of her sin. She's looking for an answer. Can God forgive her of her sin? Before dying in Florida's electric chair, a man awaiting execution for three murders confessed to 20 other murders. Ted Bundy raised a similar question to the woman's in the Brothers Karamazov with a minister who was visiting with him. Bundy questioned, does God forgive even big sins? Although Mr. Bundy is dead, his question remains an issue for many of us. Does God really forgive our worst ever sins? The issue of forgiveness is not, however, one of size. It is the issue of relationship, God to us and us to God. The question of God's forgiveness has echoed and re-echoed, though, down through the corridors of history. And each time it's raised, our attention is drawn back to a noon hour on a Friday. The site was just a short distance outside the walls of Jerusalem. The, the scriptures call the place Golgotha, the place of the skull. It had become known as Skull Hill probably because of the shape of the rock, a large lump of unsuitable stone in the quarry located right outside the city gate plus the fact that it came to be called by that name, no doubt contributed to the horror associated with the place and the effectiveness of it as an object lesson. This is what Romans do to rebels. The victim carried his own T-bar to the cross, or the place of crucifixion, rather. 
The executioners tied the victim's wrist to it in order to minimize movement. And then when the nails were driven into the wrists, not the palms of the hands, as we often see pictured, but here in this space in the bone, nails in the palms of the hands would not support the weight of the body. The crucifixion was not a pleasant sight to see. The Roman lawyer Cicero said that a Roman citizen shouldn't be made ever to even look at one. Despite the pain and shock to the bodily systems caused by the nails, the victim rarely died from the wounds in and of itself. The real problem for the crucified was breathing. Increased fatigue due to the pain involved in pulling yourself up in order to fill your lungs with fresh air rapidly caused difficulty in breathing, and that meant that the victim died of gradual asphyxiation. The details are pretty repulsive, but of all the evangelists, Luke seems most to play them down, and there's a definite reason for that. Common wisdom has it, and certainly in those days, that nothing will reveal your character more than how it is that you die. There were even manuals were published. This is in the 1500s, around the time of Luther. They were quite the best sellers. Manuals on the art of dying, including chapters on such subjects as rehearsing your last words. You see, that's because they were meant to encapsulate your character. Earlier than that, it was certainly true that many Romans were converted to Christianity when they saw how well these people died when thrown into the arena. They didn't curse those who were killing them. But like their Lord himself, they died with forgiveness on their lips. St. Stephen is the first example of that in Acts. And as we will see next Wednesday, the centurion at Jesus' death, too, was impressed by how he died. So it was impressive when in the midst of all of this suffering, we are drawn to the one on the middle cross. Almost stifled by the insanities of the moment, Jesus uttered one brief, almost unbelievable sentence. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. This is the first word from the cross in Luke. It is a prayer, a prayer for forgiveness. And isn't this a strange time for prayer in the midst of such insanity? Wouldn't some sort of hostility be more natural? And who does he want forgiven? Is it the soldiers who punched and pushed him around with that silly crown of thorns? Is it the religious leaders who ridiculed him and rejected him? If you are the Messiah, they shout in anger. Come down from the cross, and my, then we will believe. Is it the crowd who laughed and pointed fingers? Or is it the robber who in pain cursed him? Who does Jesus want forgiven? The answer is all of the above, though only the one thief seems to accept it from him. God's forgiveness, won and applied through Jesus, is for everyone as hard as that may seem to believe, even for enemies, even for those who are in the very process of putting God to death. 
The gentle Jesus of Luke's passion reassures us that God's anger is satisfied and that believers have nothing to fear, no matter who they are, or if their sins be like scarlet, as those who crucified Jesus certainly were. George Romney, an English painter, achieved widespread recognition for his paintings, but he could not handle success. He left home, deserting his wife and children, and for 38 years he remained in London, having no contact with them. And finally, an illness robbed him of his power to paint. Suddenly remembering his wife, he went back to her. She took him in, without complaining, and cared for him tenderly until he died. Romney's biographer says that act of forgiveness was more significant than any canvas George Romney ever painted. Can you imagine that? After 38 years of absence, she said nothing about the hardships his leaving left her alone to bear. She simply with open arms welcomed him back home. God forgives us just like that, unconditionally. And the words of Jesus on the cross are a sign of it. Once more, his character is revealed by those last seven words that he speaks in the Gospels, and this is the first one. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Surely those who killed him knew what they were doing. They all followed along to watch and make sure that the job was properly done. They wanted his disturbing presence out of their lives. They wanted Jesus dead, stone-cold dead, where he wouldn't be a pain in the neck anymore. Is he trying to find an excuse for their sin? In what sense were they ignorant? They had no faith, and so they could not fully understand the consequences of their actions. They turned away from the one person who could give them the answer to their struggles with God. Contrast, though, the dying thief. He shows faith. There is no way that outwardly Jesus looked like a king about to enter into his kingly power, and yet somehow, all appearances to the contrary, the thief's faith was able to grasp hold of reality. And so in the ironic wisdom of God, the first Christian to make it into heaven was a common criminal, and those who thought they were doing God a favor lost everything. What were they doing? What was Jesus doing? It was more truly about him than about them. True, in Luke's gospel, Jesus goes to death as the unfazed, unperturbed philosopher king. Jesus is the very model here of patient and selfless suffering. At the Last Supper, he thinks of his disciples, not himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he heals the servant's ear. On the way to the cross, he comforts the women of Jerusalem. And the terrible cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's omitted by Luke. Instead, we have these words of forgiveness and Jesus' final word, commending his spirit to his Father. A pious Jew's bedtime prayer taken from Psalm 31, verse 5. Evil is soaked up on the cross, since the only way that evil works, by corrupting the good, does not work in the case of the imperturbable Jesus. 
Its power is spent, and Jesus remains the good, the righteous one until the very end. But the truly impressive thing is not so much that he is wise and unflappable as that he loves and loves unconditionally. After hearing the peasant woman's confession, Father Zosima, the priest, and the brothers Karamazov says, we cannot commit a sin so great as to exhaust the infinite love of God. Can there be a sin which could exceed the love of God? Believe that God loves you as you cannot conceive, that he loves you with your sin in your sin. And we can add to that, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Amen.